WUOG 90.5 FM presents Out There, a weekly journey into the world of the occult, conspiracy theory, the paranormal, and other bizarre undercurrents of the human psyche. The views expressed on this program do not reflect those of WUOG 90.5 FM, the University of Georgia, or the Board of Regents. It's Out There with your hosts, Raymond and Joe. Hey there, and welcome to another edition of WUOG 90.5 FM's Out There Radio. My name is Raymond Wiley. And I'm Joe McFall. And we are here tonight to pull your cosmic trigger. That's right. We've got a very special episode this evening. I had a sound effect waiting for that, but Raymond has admonished me from using sound effects in this episode. Admonished, I think, is the correct word. Yeah, well, that's why I said it, the word admonished. You sound so... (laughs) So I'm put I, out. I'm put out. Yeah, me, I'll put it that way. I'm just put apparently. out, you know? Where's the excitement? Where's, where's the Joe that I know? It's in the sound effects, man. The ones that you said I can't use. All right. Are you ready? <laughs> no, to, no, to, I'm not, no, no. I'll, I'll no, I'm no? not going to. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Anyway, welcome to Out There Radio. Uh, welcome. Welcome to the show. Yes, WUOG's uh, weekly foray into the world of uh, the occult, conspiracies, the paranormal, hidden history, and, well, it, it said that on the intro. So yeah, all I, that I stuff. I need not repeat it. Uh, we've li- tossed around a few other terms that we'd like to use about yes, our show. Yes, we've added pillars yeah. if you listen to the podcast. Parapolitical, we yeah, use that sometimes. That's a, good, that's a very good term. Yeah. Anyway, tonight we've got a great show planned for you guys, a tribute to the author Robert Anton Wilson. We'll be playing uh, clips of different uh, authors and figures talking about their experiences with Wilson and his works, and we'll also be discussing uh, his biography and some of the books that he's written in depth. Uh, uh, we're joined in the studio tonight with Austin Gandy. Say hi, Austin. Hello, Raymond. Hello, Joe. Hey, Austin. And uh, he'll be back on. In Welcome just a- back to the show. <laughs> yes, he'll be back on in just a few minutes for uh, some more crazy, weird occult news. Oh yeah, that story. Uh, yeah. That story last week was great. Yeah, I really dug that. I really, really dug that so, story. <laughs> so anyway, we're also joined in the studio this week by a brand new producer, uh, Miss Erin McGinley. Say hi, Erin. Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming. Thanks for helping us out, Erin. Yeah, she should be with us here for the rest of the semester, and yeah, we're happy to have her on as part of the Out There Radio team. Big props to Erin. Yes, big yeah. time, big time. So anyway, uh, we'd also like to thank any of you that are tuning in tonight uh, on our affiliate networks, or maybe next week sometime on WPPP, or tuning in from ha- just having listened to last week's episode on Hot 100 here in beautiful Athens, Georgia. That's right. That's what I was just talking about. Oh, yeah. WPPP. I couldn't contain myself. That's right. And you know what? They were nice enough to cut us a promo tonight that says, hey, turn over to 90.5 FM. What radio station will say, turn your dial from our radio station to someone else who's in our same market. Yes, this is the power of the non-commercial radio alliance. Yes. So yes. Be, beware big media conglomerates. We will we will trample through your We will have total China radio store. coverage. That's right. That's right. Before it's over. <laughs> 24/7 out there radio on every radio That's station right. in the world. It's going to be like a communist indoctrination camp uh, yeah. with me and Joe. It's going to be great. Endlessly. It's going to be great. Yes. Yes. <laughs> anyway, before we get to our Robert Anton Wilson tribute tonight, though, we have some uh, out there news segments. Thank you. That one does n- you. N- no admonitions for that one yeah. at all. And so let me go ahead and uh, get yeah, started. Yeah, yeah, please, Raymond. 
we got got a couple of interesting things that have happened this week. First thing I want to talk about tonight is this uh, Bush backs off a little bit for once in his life, or seems to back off. Yeah, I think it's um, only it's only a mirage. It, it, yes, it's a, it's a uh, complicated ruse. It's an illusion. That's right. So yes, uh, Bush, uh, George Bush, and well, not just George Bush, but the uh, the executive branch announced today that they were going to start actually going to the FISA court and getting warrants for the wiretaps that they do on people, as opposed mm-hmm. to what they've been doing up until this point, which is just doing it and not caring and saying, oh, it's legal, when, when in fact it's totally in violation of federal law right, for them to right. tap anybody's line uh, without a FISA judge. Well, they've decided to back off a little bit. And I think the whole point of this is is sort of a PR move for them. It's supposed oh, to yeah. show them as, oh, you know, we're willing to work with the new Congress, blah, blah, blah. But, but you know, I don't, I don't yeah. see that at all because all of these FISA warrants are apparently going to go through, I think, just one... One judge. So they found their guy. They found their man. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. In the FISA courts. So, you know, if uh, if you find a judge that's just ideologically aligned with you, then you don't really have to worry about, you know, him striking down your decision. Even better, instead of finding him, I just appoint him. Uh, exactly. You well, know? anyway, let's, not to get too political on the subject, the point is, is this thing is a PR, obviously a PR move, made to make you think that Bush is sort of lightening up and cooperating when, in fact, uh, you know, the tyranny will will continue. As, yeah, of course it will. And yeah. I think his whole regime has been always about, you know, trying to make smart PR moves that end, end up failing disastrously. Yeah, remember that mission accomplished? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you also see uh, this past week when he was on 60 Minutes? One of the things he said was that, or maybe it was uh, in his speech about the escal- the troop escalation where he said this will not be a war that will you know there will be a, a ceremony at the end of it on a battleship uh, which is like totally uh, forgetting the fact that he had a big ceremony on a battleship you know aircraft three years carrier, on an aircraft like, carrier bigger than a battleship yeah like 3 years ago for the end of the war. I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. The point is, uh, you know, uh, Alberto Torture Gonzalez has chimed the in. The Grand on Inquisitor. Whole, the Grand Inquisitor, our mm-hmm. Attorney General, has, has, has chimed in and said, well, you know, it's, it's legal for us to tap without the FISA court, but we're going we're gonna to be nice. We're mm-hmm. going to play nice. But psh, yeah. they've got their yeah. man. Right. Now, that's basically what that whole thing comes down to. So that's your sort of domestic intelligence update if there yeah. was any intelligence involved in any of those decisions uh now for your sort of foreign update and i had some interesting stories and some sources that i had picked up in doing some research back in the fall that sort of uh, dovetail into this story that's come out in the past week so a bunch of different foreign news agencies have reported that there is supposedly a secret israeli plan to use tactical nuclear weapons on uh, nuclear enrichment facilities and nuclear reactors in Iran. Hmm. Okay. I don't think this came as a surprise to many people when they saw it in the, in the news. You know what I'm saying? Because this, you know, the Israelis had attacked Iraqi nuclear reactors back in the 80s, not with nuclear weapons, but Mm. they had done this sort of rogue unilateral strike that wasn't like a full-fledged war or whatever. So, you know, uh, the story seems to fit with the MO. Well, of course, the Israelis have come back and said, we've got no such plan. We, we don't plan on doing anything like that, blah, blah, blah. You know, this is just hearsay. Well, they don't even officially admit to having nukes in the first place. Right, but they do. Yeah, of yeah. course they do. Everyone knows they do, but they've never, like, officially said to the, in front of the, you know, the Atomic Energy Commission or the UN or whoever, like, 
deals with that sort of things. Yes, we have nukes. Right, but yet the whole Western world has this sort of just, you know, lackadaisical. Yeah. We know, but we're not going to say anything. Right, right. right. And uh, I, I don't, you know, I don't know the story too well off the top of my head, but I do know that the guy that that leaked that out to the Western press, they like came and got him. Oh, probably. And drug him yeah. back to Israel and did horrible things. They like took him back in a bag or a box. Or something like that. I mean, it was real bad. So, anyway, point being, this Iranian nuclear or this possible nuclear attack on Iran, you know, tack, not like we're not talking like thermonuclear war, like that right. the day after movie. Right. We're talking right. like bunker busters, whatever. But you know, I mean, even if uh, it isn't like this high yield hydrogen bomb or whatever that they set off, if they were to do this sneak attack, it would start a, a very bad precedent. You know, a precedent, a precedent that has not been broken since 1945, right. the last time that nuclear right. weapons were used in war. And even then, only twice on and two even cities. Then, only twice, exactly. So this is sort of scary. Like I said, the Israelis completely denying it. They're saying we would never do anything like that. The Iranian president came out, I think, today or yesterday and said the U.S. and Israel would not dream of attacking us, blah, 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 you know, <laughs> which, uh, you, know, I like, you know, I like the bravado in that statement. If right. you're head of state, you gotta, sure, you got to have sure. that sort of... Approach, but I just want to warn anyone who's read that news article. You know, it's not out of the question for there to be some kind of sneak attack strike on Iran using nuclear weapons. In fact, the United States military has been practicing for this very contingency for five years now, or four or five years now, maybe even longer. I think this program started back in. 2000. It has a very ominous name. It's uh, it's put on by STRATCOM, which is the uh, strategic uh, command of the U.S. military forces. It was formerly called Strategic Air Command back in the 50s during the Cold War. Anyway, this this set of war games that they do every year is called Operation Global Strike, and it's sort of the preeminent nuclear war gaming drill that goes on every year in the fall, and it's not just in the command center, it's like the bombers are out, you know, the submarines are out in position, you know, it's it's a war fighting drill. And the whole uh, point of it is to, the the drill posits not that we're attacking the Russians or some big state, but that we're, a, we're doing a preemptive strike on a rogue state with weapons of mass destruction. So uh, it was basically specifically built for the Iran problem. And we are wargaming it every year, and it has a what what it's called in the in the planning. I mean, you can read the documents online. It call it's called it has the quote nuclear option built into it. To so the idea of a first strike, a first nuclear strike on another nation is not uh, out of the question. You know, not maybe not uh, hydrogen bombs over the cities or anything, but using them in a sort of a tactical sense. And this is, I just want to say this, this is madness. The fact that we've even got this built into our war games, that we would lower the threshold for something like this. It's it, not surprising, though. It, no, it's not surprising. Unfortunately. Right? But it, it, it really shows a trend towards lowering the threshold for the use of nuclear weapons. And that's very scary to me. Absolutely. Uh, and it, it's not and, – and this whole – this uh, war gaming, uh, Operation Global Strike, which goes on every year in the fall this year, its incarnation was Global Lightning 07. It took place back right before the election, actually. So this, you know, this by itself might not be too scary, right? But when you put it with things like articles like, uh, this is one that I picked up. It's uh, actually a scholarly 
paper. It's called The End of Mutually Assured Destruction, The Nuclear Dimension of U.S. Primacy. And this is by Kier Lieber and Daryl G. Press. They wrote this back in the fall, and it sparked a... um, Where was that published? I'm I'm not sure where that was published, but I know that another version of this long article was published Mm -hmm. in Foreign Affairs magazine back back in April, and I think it was called Revisiting U.S. Nuclear Primacy, I believe was the name of the article. Okay, so both the article that ran in Foreign Affairs, one of the biggest magazines, you know, political science magazines in the country. It's it's the mouthpiece of the Council on Foreign Relations, mm-hmm. okay? So this article runs that's basically a boiled-down version of this, the end of Mutually Assured Destruction article. And it's all about how, according to these two military scholars, that the U.S. could have a surprise strike on another on the Russians or on the Chinese and not just survive it mm-hmm. uh, that they could actually wipe out all of the nuclear arsenals of Russia with a preemptive strike before they attack us before they attack us what now, about China same oh uh, like they, the whole article is about Russia and yeah. it targets Russian nuclear forces and ex- explains exactly how they would do it right okay, this is it's sick stuff if yeah. you ask me yeah but, uh, oh, no, there's just this footnote about China at the end, you know. This is the Russian forces. We calculated that we won't get hit back with anything else. Yeah. The Chinese would be nothing in comparison. That was basically all it talked about. China was like one sentence. The Chinese would be nothing in comparison to fighting the Russian nuclear arsenal. That's what they say. So, freaky stuff. And it's caused a big backlash amongst scholars and academics all year. There have been people... People speaking out about this, saying, "Hey, this this kind of talk destabilizes mm-hmm. nations," Absolutely. and and I I totally agree with that. And you, but you read this document, and it's like, "Wow, these guys, this is like the nuclear attack plan, yeah. or whatever." It's, it's kind of creepy. It's like watching that Matthew Broderick movie, War Games. Right, you seen that? right. Can I make a recommendation to our listeners, real quick? We've recommended this movie before, but if you're not going to go uh, listen to more of our archives after this show, go watch Doctor Strange Love again. If you haven't seen it already, go watch it for the first yes, time. Yes, please, because it it sort of paints it sort of paints the bigness of the the atomic bomb question yeah. against the silliness and stupidity of human beings, yeah. and the fact that they've mixed for this long is sort of surprising. Mm-hmm. I want to say, but uh, there's this. Uh, the, let's knock this, on wood on all this and continue right. on to another another news segment. One of the scenes in Doctor Strangelove has uh, the general. Played by George C. Scott, I don't remember his name mm-hmm. in the movie, but um, he's sitting at the big round table in the war room, mm-hmm. and the book in front of him uh, is titled. And you can see it on the spine of the book. It's titled "World Targets in Megadeths." <laughs> so he's. Got, I think that's where the name <laughs> of the band Megadeth came yeah, from. Yeah, yeah. So this, these are the kind. I mean, that's. But that wouldn't be like. Doesn't seem like it would be an unusual title for people who think about nuclear war all the time. Well, they're thinking about world targets and mega deaths. You yeah, know? they're thinking about yeah, exactly. How many that. millions of people for each target? I mean, just think about how far removed you have to be from f- human feeling. Yeah. To yeah. to even consider being a part of something like that. Anyway, you know, we we sort of of digress here, but these these sorts of plans have been around for a long time. And if you want to read what I'm talking about, uh, the Operation Global Strike stuff, just type in Operation Global Strike or Con Plan, 
8022. Uh, you can also visit falseflagnews.com, and there's some information about it on there. And the uh, End of Mad article, just look up the End of Mad, and you should be able to find the article. It's posted on a lot of different universities' websites in, like, PDF form, because it's, I think it's, I don't know if it's peer-reviewed, but it's, it's a serious academic paper, mm-hmm. and that kind of makes it even scarier. Right. Anyway, up next... Austin Gandy, Austin our very Gandy. own Austin Gandy. Got some weird, occ- weird occult news for us tonight, don't you, Austin? I do indeed. As usual. The Invisible College has been carefully monitoring emerging conditions on the astral plane to bring you a story whose state vector has not even fully collapsed. Oh, this one's uh, breaking out of Euless, Texas, and it's something that'll ring some bells with people who have... Uh, people familiar with both alternative religions and the religious freedom uh, as impinged upon by the federal government in the past and the resolution of these things. This is this is an old story that we're seeing again. You guys may remember a stint in the uh, 90s. There was a certain scare. There was a mysterious cult, which nobody had really heard about, which uh, was a Caribbean... Uh, voodoo-flavored cult which was sacrificing animals in Florida and there was a big public outcry from animal rights groups and uh, animal cruelty activists and also uh, city officials were very upset about health code uh, violations because um, this mysterious and dark cult was uh, was basically violating a great number of uh, city ordinances which had not been very clearly thought out but uh, this this mysterious cult, it turns out, um, is actually Santeria, a mysterious and shadowy cult which has three to four million followers in the United States. <laughs> now, uh, historically, this just to give you guys a little background on what this religion is so we can understand uh, why it's misunderstood and hopefully uh, see how it's going to unfold and how it un- uh, unfolded in the 90s. Historically, it was known as Lukumi. This is a religion that or- originated in southwest Nigeria thousands of years ago. It's a Yoruba origin, and it was, of course, brought to the Caribbean region through the transatlantic slave trade. But it didn't arrive in the United States until around the 1960s, when it was brought to Florida during the Cuban exodus. And shortly thereafter, uh, people started to notice that there was a there was kind of a new religion in town. There was a bit of a public outcry when people started to realize that there were people in their neighborhoods who were sacrificing animals. There were complaints filed, especially in Florida in this case, uh, with regard to um, what was perceived as improper disposal of animal parts, uh, animal cries, so on and so forth. Basically, what this religion involves is, and it's undergone a great deal of change as it came to the United States, or as it came to the Western world through this transatlantic slave trade. It it began very much as a a very animistic, probably ancestor-worship-related religion, um, where spiritual entities known as Orishas were kind of emanations or spirits associated or which came from a creator deity. And these Orishas uh, could be contacted through a variety of means. And in the most important of rituals, the way to open a bridge of communication with these Orishas was to offer a blood sacrifice. The blood was thought to have kind of an odic or vital force to it, which would allow these spirits to to enter into the sacred space, which due to the the destruction of a lot of societal and cultural uh, traditions during the um, the slave trade uh, would often occur in secret and in people's private residences instead of in a temple or a church. So, 
in the 90s, a Mr. Pichardo uh, went to the Supreme Court to challenge an ordinance in Hialeah, Florida. Hialeah. Thank you. Every week I've got something. (laughs) Uh, Which prohibited religious sacrifice of animals. But um, this Mr. Pichardo uh, realized while this, uh, this prohibition on the religious sacrifices of animals existed, there were exceptions made for other killings, such as in fishing, hunting, and the euthanasia of pets. And he, he viewed this as a, a very strange uh, prioritization of uh, what things should be allowable. He viewed this as, and rightly so, improper federal impinging upon his, his right to practice his religion without interference. So, what we see now is a Mr. Merced in Euless, Texas, as of January 15th, I believe, a initiation ritual was scheduled at his private re- private residence with about 10, uh, I suppose, uh, worshipers in, in attendance. And they were going to be uh, initiating one of their, uh, a new participant in the religion. And this would, of course, necessitate a sacrifice of a chicken. Um, it should be noted that the sacrifice is always performed, according to Mr. Pichardo, who came forth to make a further statement on this emerging story. Uh, it's always performed humanely uh, with a single puncturing of the carotid artery with a four-inch knife, um, which, if you're familiar with the practice of, I suppose, uh, factory conditions in, uh, in animal slaughter, uh, is actually tremendously humane. My grandmother says that uh, to kill chickens on the farm when she was growing up, she would grab them by the head and swing them swing them around over her head. Yeah, that's exactly how it's done uh, on, yeah. the, on the farm, Joe. And this seems so much nicer I know. than that. So cut its throat. Or, or the assembly yeah. line of death, like you were talking about. So, but, but, but no, do it in a religious context. Mm-hmm. It's a no-no. Yeah. And it's been pointed out before, and we should point it out again, that it is, it's a funny thing to draw a line between somebody praying over an animal, killing it, and then, as they do in Santeria, cooking it and eating it as to, to draw a comparison uh, to to refuse to draw a comparison to something like a Thanksgiving dinner around the old American uh, table where you kill an animal, cook it, and then pray over it and eat it. You know what's There's interesting too is that I mean kosher and halal meat needs to be slaughtered in a very particular way mm-hmm. but you know it involves praying over it, slitting its throat when it's facing in a, in a particular direction and then, you know, eating it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, really, what's the difference between, say, two of the big three biblical religions and then something that's, I've, I've heard described, I've heard Santeria described as sort of a Cuban voodoo, mm-hmm. you know? So, I mean, what's really the difference when it comes down to it? And a mere 30 or 40 years ago, it would not be uncommon to see in your neighborhood a, a pig sticking or a pig roasting, you know, right. in the backyard. Sure, sure, sure. Um, it's... Yeah. I think that's the problem today. Is it's mm. it's not in my neighborhood. I don't want to see it. And, <laughs> right, and right, right. It's it's emerging again. And the city of Euless, Texas, has of this broadcast not they have not made a comment uh, regarding their their decision uh, with regards to this ordinance and its violation of the Supreme Court decision to uh, overthrow the prohibition in Florida. Hialeah. Hialeah. Yeah. Um, so in Euless, they have a similar ordinance where. Mm-hmm. Can't kill any animals. Within no the animals city limits. whatsoever can be killed within the city limits, with the exception of uh, the euthanasia of pets and uh, the extermination of pests. Interesting. Mm. Very interesting. I just want to point out a slight, a mildly interesting synchronicity, in honor, kind of, of our uh, the topic, the next topic we're going to talk about. Uh, one of my best friends was born in Hialeah. Used to date a girl who practiced Santeria. 
in San Francisco. Yeah, go well, figure. Uh, the Invisible College is watching this uh, story closely <laughs> and would like to bring this to the attention of, of all the occultists, all the uh, those interested in alternative religions and those uh, wary of the government's interference in the free practice of your religious freedoms. Um, here, here. Signing out. That's your final thought there. Thanks, Austin. All right, man. Thank Thank you you very very much. much. You know, I don't like um, people who impinge on religious freedom. I just don't dig it. I'm not a religious man myself. I really don't either. You know, and it's it's sort of, but case in point, really. I mean, it's sort of old hat in our society at this point. Yeah. So yeah. You know, anyway. Do what you want to do. That's what I always say. That's right. I mean, you know, whatever. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Austin Gandy. Yeah, for, thank you. For thank you very alerting much. Alerting us to, the, to your news. So, yeah, San, Santeria people, um, hopefully that'll work out for them. You know, maybe. Yeah, we'll, sure. Hopefully we'll find out in the next couple of weeks. But anyway, so Robert Anton Wilson. Yes. One of the greatest geniuses of the 20th century. I'm not making a an ill-prepared statement there when I say that. I've thought about this. You're not the first person to say that either. Well? I mean, he. I, to be honest, if you've never picked up any books by Robert Anton Wilson, go tomorrow and right. buy some. He passed this week. This past week, this actually. Past week. It was actually the morning of our last episode. Okay. So our episode went to two in the morning, and he passed away at like five o'clock that morning. I got you. And we had actually spoken about yeah. uh, Robert Anton Wilson in our mm-hmm. interview with Jay Beldo last week, um, which you may have heard. Strange coincidence that we would be talking about him that very night. Although, you know, if you if show. you've listened to our show extensively, you'll hear us mention him several he times. Come to, to he many does come up. He does come up. And you know, yeah. and if you uh, and you know, we'll get to this when we get into some of these audio clips later. But if you know, one of the best moments on our show, I think, for me, was when uh, the Reverend Ivan Stang came on and uh, inducted us into right. a uh, sort of meta-religious uh, order and, you know, made us, quote-unquote, priests. Well, this was a practice that he got from Robert Anton Wilson. Yeah, in fact, uh, he'll, he'll be talking in one of the clips, and he mentioned something very similar to that. Before we get into, like, biography stuff, let's play just, there's like a short... A clip. This is actually most of the clips you're going to be hearing tonight come from a, partic- a single documentary called Maybe Logic, which is available um, on MaybeLogic.com. There's also the Maybe Logic Academy at MaybeLogic.org. Right. We want to we want to thank them for allowing us uh, to use these clips. Right. Yeah. They, they these are used with permission. I was so. about to say yeah. They form our primary source for tonight. Yeah. At the very least, go to their website and check out what they have yes, to offer. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And man, I really I, I was I was really happy that they were they allowed us to use some of these clips. Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah, because this absolutely. is some good stuff. I mean, we've got we're gonna have Ivan Stang back on <laughs> the kind show of, yeah, yeah. tonight, as well as Tom Robbins of but, all people. You yeah, know? who yeah. would have thought Tom Robbins right, out there? Right. Yeah. This this first clip you're gonna hear is sort of a montage of Robert Anton Wilson himself. It's a few minutes, so if you've never heard him of him, never heard his voice, read his books, or seen anything about him, this is this will be sort of a good introduction to what the rest of the show is gonna be about tonight. So, Aaron, do you wanna play that first clip? There is an invariable consistent with quantum mechanics. Its rate of change in space will be zero. And its rate of change in time will also be zero. So there will be an implicate order contained within everything that contains the information of everything else. 
or as the hippies in the 60s used to say, oh, wow, man, I think everything is just like you know everything. How often does being sure about everything make you act like a damn fool? Probably about 90% of the time, and that's, what, and that's what's wrong with the planet. Oh, I'm working on a new book called SOG, The Thing That Ate the Constitution. It's a series of reflections on the increasingly czarist orientation of the American government. It was inspired by rereading Trotsky on czarism, and it suddenly struck me how much it was applied to the United States. <laughs> At one point, something around seven or eight, they admitted there was no Santa Claus. And as soon as I recovered from the shock, my next thought is, when are they going to admit there's no God? They never did. Like, I'm also a Buddhist, a Taoist, and a Confucian. As well as a Discordian, a subgenius, and a witch. The strongest conspiracy on the planet is the conspiracy of the stupid to prevent schools from educating their children because they want their children to be as dumb as they are, to prevent television from putting anything intelligent on <laughs> as much as possible. To keep well, with the exception of this half hour. Of <laughs> well, of course. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Present company exploded. <laughs> I think it's very little experience to realize how little you really know. And how much of the time you're just guessing. One thing that makes forgiveness easier and believe me, life without forgiveness ain't worth living. You need a human brain. Dogs see grass differently. After all, you need a human brain and you need the grass hitched together to make the yoga, which we call the greenness of the grass. Everybody thinks it's very hard to be a mystic. You've got to go through a hell of a lot of effort to realize your union with everything. But actually, you're experiencing your union with everything all the time. Otherwise, you wouldn't be experiencing anything. <laughs> Well, it's like you're using parts of your brain that you generally don't have access to. Like my period in the 70s where I thought I was receiving messages from outer space, and then two psychics told me I was channeling two different spirits, an Irish bard and a Chinese alchemist. Then I saw Harvey and decided it was most economical to think it was just a puka from County Kerry playing games with me. Robert Anton Wilson being contacted by extraterrestrials. No, it's Robert Anton Wilson going crazy. No, it's just Robert Anton Wilson experimenting with alternative realities and coming out of Temple Carlos at the end without believing in any of them. Once you realize that you, that you might occasionally be a cosmic schmuck, you become a lot more attentive to it. You think more on probabilities rather than excited. What's going on is the whole country is crazy. Ninety percent of them believe what the government is telling them. The other ten percent are arguing whether they should immigrate or hide in caves. I'm more in favor of hiding in a cave. So I'm, I'm examining the caves in the area to decide which one I want to move into. I will officially announce that everybody in this room is now a Discordian Pope, just like me. You are all absolutely infallible and don't take crap from anybody. We are creating the reality tunnel we're experiencing from moment to moment. So there's a total unity between you and the universe, whether you're aware of it or not. The universe you live in is your creation.
when anybody tells you what you should like and enjoy and what you shouldn't like and enjoy, like what you like, enjoy what you enjoy, and don't say crap from anybody. Hey, I think I just summed up my whole philosophy in three sentences. I was on the subway, we came up out of the ground, and up out of the hole, and the ground was covered with snow. Or as some Japanese bureaucrat wrote in a haiku after achieving his enlightenment, the clouds parted, the thunder crashed, there sat the old man in all his homeliness. <laughs> so you just heard, that was a clip of, uh, like a montage of audio from Robert Antona Wilson. Uh, those clips are from the Maybe Logic documentary. Yeah, again, which we just mentioned. Yeah, so let me, I'm going to give the website again, Raymond. Go it's, for it, uh, MaybeLogic.com. There's also the Maybe Logic Academy, which is MaybeLogic.org. So check that out. All these other clips come from the, the extras on that DVD as well. The, the clips that we're going to hear throughout the rest of the show all come from, on the extras DVD, there's the raw cohort interviews. Um, so these are all clips of uh, Robert and Tom Wilson's friends and admirers talking about him. So the ones that we're going to play, and we'll introduce each one, but we're going we're gonna to hear some from Ivan Stang, Paul Krasner, Tom Robbins, uh, there's another clip in there from uh, Wilson himself, and so on. But right now, let's talk about his life a little bit and who this guy is. Yeah. I don't think we really mentioned that. Um, this is uh, from straight from Wikipedia, in fact. He was born in Brooklyn, New York, and spent his first years in Flatbush, moving with his family to Garrettson Beach around the age of four or five, where they stayed until he was 13. He suffered from polio as a child, the effects of which remained with him throughout his life. In fact, they ultimately caused his death last week. He, he was suffering for quite some time now from po- uh, post-polio syndrome, and increasingly found it difficult to move and, and even to speak uh, towards the end. He attended Brooklyn Polytechnical College and New York University studying engineering and mathematics. Uh, he worked as an engineering aide, salesman, and copywriter, and was associate editor for Playboy magazine from 1965 to 1971. In 1979, he received a Ph.D. in psychology from Paideia University in California, which, in, which is an institution that has since closed. The reworked dissertation was published in 1983 as his book, Prometheus Rising, which, in fact, Raymond, is one of my favorite of his books. Yeah, and, and uh, a, a very highly regarded book amongst sort of people with alternative religious, spiritual sort of outlooks. Um, I, I find that a lot of people like how deep it is, but yet it still remains in some ways tongue-in-cheek, and it's the still, writing style. It's especially. very accessible is the thing. It's very accessible to even just like the lay reader. You know, you don't have to ha- know anything about psychology necessarily to read the book. I read it when I was probably like, I don't know, 18. And almost everyone I know who, who's read that book, Prometheus Rising, has said that it literally changed their life. Sure. I mean, uh, I think the title sort of sums it up, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. we go back to the Prometheus myth from uh, the ancient Greek, you know. Prometheus is the one who, who, who evolves man. You know what I'm saying? He brings man up out of its animal state through fire, of course. And you know, I'm sure we all know the story. But it's very interesting that Wilson in his work sort of tells you, hey, you've got to take control of your own evolution. Mm-hmm. Basically, you've got to take control of your own ascent up towards something better and I think that's that's basically the the basic premise of the book right yeah, Prometheus yeah, Rising yeah so. yeah but he had been a novelist before that yeah in fact uh, his best known work is called the Illuminatus trilogy from 1975 it was co-authored with Robert Shea and advertised as a fairy tale for paranoids the Illuminatus trilogy basically is this 
very long, very imaginative fiction piece. Yeah, and it features, you know, all these factions sort of com- yeah. competing with each other for the towards this one worldwide conspiracy. So you've got, you know, people like the Discordians right. and, uh, you know, the followers of Set or and whatever. The and, so, the Illumin- and the Illuminati. And the Illuminati. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In fact, um, for many people... The Illuminatus trilogy was their introduction to Discordianism, including Reverend Ivan Stang, uh, who ended up basing the Church of the Subgenius a lot on what on uh, Wilson's portrayal of the Discordian society in the trilogy. Yeah, and that get, sort of gave me a hard time when I first got into these tongue-in-cheek comedic sort of spiritual groups back a couple of years ago. Was you know I knew that they were featured in this novel, but I didn't know just like Stang at first whether the Discordians were even real or whether they were just sort of these characters in a book. And, and it's very interesting that it works out that way because if we go back you know, to the original uh, badass secret society, the Order of the Rosy Cross, the Rosicrucians, mm-hmm. back in the early 1600s, you know, there's still a debate that rages to this day. You know, uh, were these early Rosicrucian secret society manifestos, were they created by imaginative authors? Or, uh, and, and, and then did... You know, and then groups sort of grew up around that fictional literature, or was there actually a group right. before? So it sort of leaves you, it, it works well. The book leaves you questioning, yeah. and it doesn't it doesn't make you insane quite as much as a lot of right. other conspiracy I'll stuff. I'll say it right now. I'm not a, re- a very religious person, but I would prefer any joke religion to any real religion, personally. <laughs> any joke religion. Well, hey, who's to, I mean, there's there's nothing to say that even though a religion has aspects of comedy in it or a spiritual path has aspects of comedy in it, doesn't mean you can't in some way devote yourself to it or that it doesn't have a decent philosophy, I guess. Here, here, yeah. You know, let's go. Let's play the Ivan Stang clip. You want to just go now, ahead and yeah, yeah, let's, let's, let's play the Stang clip. So, yeah, this, uh, this clip is about 15 minutes. It's Ivan Stang talking about Robert Anton Wilson. Ivan Stang, of course, who, whom we've had on our show before. Uh, one of one of my favorite interviews from our show. Praise Bob. Yeah, and and this is uh, Stang talking about Wilson again. This is from the Maybe Logic DVD. So enjoy this. We'll be back in a second. Is Robert Anton Wilson Bob? Well, yes, but is he is is Robert Anton Wilson the same as J.R. Bob Dobbs? Uh, no, no, absolutely not. Uh, they. They're 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 both uh, a couple of rogues, I believe. I, Bob knows Bob. Bob has partied with Bob. Uh, Bob Wilson, Pope Bob to we subgeni, uh, is one of the few people who actually has partied with J.R. Bob Dobbs, and he has described this at length in his writings. Uh, I personally have never met J.R. Bob Dobbs. For all I know, maybe Pope Bob Wilson is J.R. Bob Dobbs. Could be. How would I know? Uh, unless I were one of the Illuminati. Uh, really, seriously, let's not cheapen these uh, serious uh, topics uh, by pretending to to uh, toss about secrets of uh, the Illuminati in, in a, a documentary film. For, meant for the public to see. The unwashed public, I might add. Actually, the first book by Robert Anton Wilson that I picked up and read was not Illuminatus, but the Playboy book of Forbidden Words, uh, which may have been his first published book. Uh, the cover 
was unforgettable. I can still remember the girl on the cover. Now, I, I picked the book up because I was interested in the linguistics of cussing and, uh, and the, the subject matter they referred to uh, that, that cussing generally revolves around. Uh, and uh, I loved the book. I learned a lot from it. I was only 15 or so when I read it, so I still remember most of it. I didn't know the name of the guy who wrote it. I don't know if Pope Bob's name was uh, uh, on the cover exactly, but, uh, but I do remember that girl on the cover. And I have found that book very useful. I have quoted it. It taught me new bad words that I shouldn't use and still do. Praise Bob. My first exposure to uh, Illuminatus was uh, I simply was wandering through a supermarket and saw it, of all things, in a supermarket uh, paperback rack. And it had an eye and a pyramid on it. I had to go for that, you know. That, everybody has wondered about that spooky picture. And uh, it was never explained to me until I read that book. But it was that image that originally attra attracted me. It wasn't the first book of the series, I don't think, or maybe it was. Uh, but I recall standing there in the store, flipping open the book and reading this list of the band names uh, that were appearing at this um, Bavarian festival or something. And when I read that list of band names that were entirely fictitious, I thought, this guy's been reading the same comic books I have. I didn't know real book authors read comic books. Uh, and I uh, enjoyed the hell out of it. I was inspired by Illuminatus. I took a yellow marker and uh, marked the names of every secret society in there and swore I'd do a little bit more homework on it. I remembered thinking that the Discordians which were described in there were something Pope Bob or, or Bob Shea had invented. I didn't know that there really was a Principia Discordia um, and was horrified when I actually saw one about six months after we printed the book, uh, the pamphlet of the subgenius, the first pamphlet. You know, because I, I could tell it, it predated ours and I was afraid we'd be accused of ripping them off. Uh, which we did, but only by way of Pope Bob. We, we ripped off the Discordians only by way of Robert Anton Wilson. Uh, and I'm, I'm perfectly happy to admit that. That's no problem at all. We, we all dig in the graves of ancient great dead religions. And like the great Dr. Frankenstein, piece new ones together, bring, breathe life into these uh, abhorrent things in the hopes of making a new superior one and uh, like Dr. Frankenstein we all are killed by the monster we created praise Bob I think the reason that uh, Pope Bob is, is such a beloved philosopher among grizzled uh, hipster philosophers is that Pope Bob is a sex god I mean he is the coolest coolest of the cool beatniks. He is the smoothest, suavest, slickest, smooth-talkingest, silverest-tongued of all the devils I have known. Uh, well, well, certainly one of the, one of the, the most charming. And, uh, and by gosh, he's written so many books and they all seem so smart. 
that make you feel like you're smart while you're reading them. You can almost understand what he's talking about while you're reading it. As soon as you put it down, eh, well, it drifts off like quantum physics or, you know, anything complicated. Archie Comics, it's kind of hard to hold the, the whole gist of it all in your head after you put the book and the pipe down. What do Robert Anton Wilson fans have in common? Nothing, uh, praise Bob, uh, which is proof that uh, Bob Wilson is a terrible inventor of mind control cults. Uh, his followers don't really follow him very closely. They, 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 they hit and run. They take what they need and go off and invent their own religions. It's just no way to get rich quick. In other words, I, I don't think Robert Anton Wilson will ever have the following that an L. Ron Hubbard would have because uh, Robert Anton Wilson isn't uh, disgusting. He doesn't paint a simple picture of life. In fact, he seems to rejoice in its complexity. Uh, he's the opposite of Rush Limbaugh. Rush makes the complex simple. Well, the complex is complex. And Pope Bob appreciates that, and I appreciate Pope Bob appreciating that. It doesn't ride well with the young people uh, or the, uh, say, the Rush Limbaugh fans uh, it, it, who tend to want to see things more cut and dry. It, it, uh, it leaves a lot of responsibility up to the reader or, uh, you know, the person who is um, investigating uh, Pope Bob's philosophies. It, you know, he... he uh, he throws the ball back into your court. That's what I've always liked about his books. Uh, he's really not much of a, a teacher uh, it, it, so much, or rather he's not a lecturer, it, rather he, he, he forces you to ask the right questions. Um, he might or might not know the answer, and even if he does know the answer, he might give you a false one, just as part of his little running test of reality. Uh, I, I, I know how he feels. Um, I used to do that too. I used to tell people a likely sounding stories or unlikely sounding stories just to see what they would believe. Of course I swore off all that when I went to work for J.R. Bob Dobbs. But uh, you know there is a, a bit of the prankster, just a wee tiny bit of the prankster in uh, Pope Bob's writings and, and in his lectures. Uh, uh, and uh, I have been amused sometimes to see some of his more earnest fans uh, struggle, you know, the, the, trying to nail down just exactly where Pope Bob stands on, say, UFOs or uh, ESP or something like that. And uh, I think he stands on the same sandy, slippery beach as, as many practitioners of, um, well, not magic, you know, but judging by, if you judge it by its, its most devoted practitioners, uh, magic sometimes appears to backfire. When things are done logically, 
they magically seem to happen the same way each time. Whereas when they're done magically, they logically don't happen the same way each time. I'm not sure where that takes us, but uh, it sounds good. And is not most religion and philosophy uh, but a pep talk? That which sounds good and keeps us going uh, against the entropy and sad depression that might otherwise drag us down were it not for Bob, Bob and them other Bobs, all them Bobs. How do I interpret what happened to Bob during the serious years? I can't really comment on that. I don't know that much about it. I think, um, I think many of us at one point were not giving ourselves enough credit for how much mysterious coincidence and power our own little noggins could supply. I think Dr. Tim Leary uh, didn't give himself enough credit for a little while there. And I I know it happened to me, you know, where you think, oh, this is just too magical the way everything's happening. There must be some forces guiding me. Well, there may be, but they're just little forces deep, deep, deep inside the little noggin. I haven't read all of of Wilson's books, but I've read uh, probably more than half. And the thing that that, uh, seems to resonate with me, that that I pick up on from book to book, is there's a sort of a sense that there may be a mysterious underlying connection between things that don't normally seem to be connected. Of course, that way lies madness, schizophrenia, and internet usenet trolls. You know, some people say the world is all illusion, it's all Maya. And some say, no, that's a bunch of claptrap. It's, you know, this chair is hard. If I stub my toe, it hurts. Well, why not both? You know, it may be, it, it, in fact, most of it may be real and most of it may be imaginary. It really is a little of both. Um, and that may be the most important of Bob's message messages. Uh, how are Discordianism and the Church of the Subgenius allied? Well, uh, the Discordians and the Subgeniuses steal from each other. Um, they steal women and men from each other. Uh, they don't seem to steal much artwork or, or really even many jokes uh, from each other. Uh, sometimes it's a moot point because a lot of subgeniuses are also Discordians. I guess I could, I could say that I was a Discordian before I was, uh, before I knew I was a subgenius. The thing is, if subgeniuses are made and born, uh, they don't become, if, if you know what I mean. Um, some wag said, oh, the, the difference between subgenius and discordianism, the subgeniuses are the ones who are getting laid. That was a mean thing to say. Um, but I should note that while I might also be called a discordian, uh, Pope Bob is a 
die-hard, dues-paying subgenius minister, uh, as is uh, or was the uh, the late great uh, Carrie Thornley, and other Discordian uh, authors and uh, spokespersons. Uh, so uh, we, the subgeniuses and the Discordians, are the watchmen who watch each other. Nobody else is really paying that much attention to us. I'm afraid. You know, let's be let's be honest. It's it's obviously not July 5th, 1998 has not yet arrived, or uh, the subgeniuses would be running the world or some other worlds of their own individually. With many happy Discordian slaves, and we would keep we'd be good to our Discordians. We would not do to them what we will do to the pinks, the normals, the disbelievers. We will be merciful to the Discordians, relatively. To us, to us, he's he's not Robert Anton Wilson, he's Pope Bob. He's a subgenius Pope and a Discordian Pope. Um, our, our Pope card is a is directly inspired by the Pope cards I've read about in his books. I should mention um, that uh, I was lucky enough to uh, at least briefly get to know the late Bob Shea uh, before he died, uh, and, and get a, a, a. I got to watch Shea and Wilson talk about movies together. Um, late one night at a Winter Star Festival um, in Ohio, and that was one of the. I, I mean, I, I felt truly, truly privileged to watch Wilson and Shay uh, enjoy themselves. And it was really funny uh, watching those two guys just talking about movies. They weren't talking about conspiracies or publishing or anything like that. They were just talking about movies. But you could tell it was those, you know, these two guys have gone over some pretty the funny kook mail over the years together while working in that office at Playboy. Um, and you could you could kind of see the chemistry, uh, the troublemaker aspect, the uh, mischievous uh, little boys that uh, were, were using office time for something that wasn't really part of the office job. And look what happened. Um, praise Bob, praise all the Bobs, Bob Wilson, Bob Shea, J.R. Bob Dobbs. Actually, I start now. I start to think of a lot of Dobbs, that, that Bobs that do not need to be praised. So, for later on, we'll think of some Bobs to damn. Uh, I, I personally certainly do owe uh, a, a great debt of gratitude to uh, to Bob Wilson and Bob Shea for the Illuminatus trilogy because. Without that, there would certainly not be a church of the subgenius. Uh, my buddies and my might and I might have done something bad, but it wouldn't have been as bad as it was without Pope Bob. Okay, so that was the Reverend Ivan Stang talking about Robert Anton Wilson, as always enjoyable. The next clip we're going to hear is uh, Paul Krasner. He, he's a 60s countercultural icon, editor, founder and editor of The Realist magazine mm-hmm. from the late 50s, early 60s. One of the first people to publish Wilson. Right. 
You know, it's interesting to note, Joe, you were talking about Krasner and how he publishes magazines, you know. It's interesting to note how many of these sort of countercultural figures came up through journal and magazine publication first before mm-hmm. they came through uh, books or before they became really famous. I mean, obviously Wilson working with Playboy, you know, another, another prime example would be Hunter S. Thompson. Oh, yeah. His gonzo yeah. form of journalism. It, sure. It's uh, it's it strikes me as sort of uh, an interesting way for people to start getting used to uh, putting out information on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Because later on they go on to to write much more, I guess, voluminous texts. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, enough of my jibber jabber on that. Let's get to this uh, this clip. Paul Krasner on Robert Anton Wilson. Bob's influence has been more literary, I think. Um, although it's tied in with drugs and sex and conspiracy and, and all the other aspects. Uh, but um, I, th- I think it, I think one of his particular contributions has been, though, that people um, are willing to accept the fact that they may not know what is true and, and what is made up. And I guess that's a good thing. Bob inspires the desire to share that kind of information with other people, you know. To, to show you uh, how the extent to which people will go to to try and and be true to their belief system, no no matter how absurd the belief system is. The counterculture is is still evolving and uh, it takes different forms now, but but the attitude is basically um, uh, a a continuation of uh, bull detection. an alternative to, to, to living in the midst of the bull. So I think Bob uh, is very much aware of that evolution, you know, from the bohemians to the um, beats, to the hippies, to the yippies, to the punks, to whatever is go- going on now, you know, from the uh, acid tests to the raves. So he has a strong sense of continuity. It's an attitude, it's an attitude of, of of combining uh, skepticism and skepticism of skepticism, you know, it's uh, so he, it's, it's not that he won't take a position, it's just that he understands that um, uh, whatever people do works for them, you know, whether it's um, Scientology or Catholicism, I think Bob was brought up as a Catholic. And I think he became a Marxist at the age of 16. And then I forget what he gave that up for, probably for drugs. Um, so, uh, you know, he encapsulated what's, uh, what uh, some people took a lifetime to, to go through those kind of changes, political, social, philosophical. When I first met him, he had seen a copy of The Realist and uh, and sent me an article. It was the first time he was published on the semantics of God. So after, after he wrote that article, um, he started doing a regular column, which he called uh, Negative Thinking, which of course was a takeoff on uh, Norman Vincent Peale's positive thinking at the time. And he wrote, he wrote some stuff that, that you know, I, since I gave him the column and he could do whatever he wanted, he wrote some stuff which um, I didn't quite understand about it, Ezra Pound. But uh, he also wrote uh, a whole series on uh, Alastair Crowley, and I always said Crowley until when I edited it, you know, he put in parentheses, uh, sounds like holy, 
or pronounced like holy. And um, I, you know, I, I would first I would read it when it came in manuscript form. Then I would read it again, editing it for the printer. Then I would again proofread it when it came back from the printer, and then proofread it again when the corrections were made, and then read it when it came out in the magazine. So I would read his pieces maybe six times altogether, and each time you get all the nuances. So, uh, so I, I learned a lot in the editing process. He had a certain formal style, which was good because it, 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 it gave a certain credibility to his outrageousness. I think the um, thing that sums up Bob uh, is um, when I saw him at the Prophets Conference, we hadn't seen each other in, in a while, and uh, he said, how you doing? And uh, I said, uh, still skeptical after all these years. How are you doing? And he said, still open-minded after all these years. And, uh, uh, and I, I, I think he tries to live up to that statement. It wasn't just rhetoric. First of all, he's a prolific writer. And so people are curious to see what he's going to say next. You know, if, as a futurist um, and as a thinker and as one who's had a lot of experience, uh, there's a respect for what his visions are. He's a visionary. And, um, um, and I think he's as curious as they are to see what he's going to come up with next. I'm surprised by his diligence at, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't know if he struggles at, you know, I've never s sit down and watched him actually write, so I don't know if, if he struggles with it or it flows. I don't know his, his uh, process, but, um, but the results uh, indicate that, um, that amidst all the seriousness, and he writes about serious stuff, uh, there's a playfulness, and I think people like that combination uh, because it means that um, he might not take himself as seriously as he takes his uh, point of view uh, or his, um, uh, you know, some, I remember him saying once, some people say I'm charismatic, I don't know why. And I'm not sure if it's false humility or he's genuinely surprised. I don't see that much separation between him as um, a person or as a public speaker, for example, um, because he doesn't have a script for either role. You know, he just, uh, uh, I think he enjoys uh, walking a tightrope without a net. You know, he has that mixture of so many people in, um, um, who were recognized writers, which is uh, they waver between overconfidence and insecurity. And so, um, but you know, he has a, a track record uh, that would indicate that he has a reason to be confident. And, um, and um, especially with, I say, like a book about sex and drugs, I think, uh, uh, you know, he wrote about and compiled and researched what uh, other people have discovered empirically in bed. But, uh, but it's always nice to have um, um, uh, background material for what you're experiencing. It's uh, ironic that as prolific as he's been, I don't think uh, uh, that he got a lot of um, uh, 
funds. You know, he doesn't have a Swiss bank account. And uh, I remember one time when I was just financially broken, and he comforted me on the phone. It, you know, as, as skeptical as he could be, it was like a leap of faith. He just kind of, almost like a guarantee, he said, don't worry, Paul, things are gonna turn out better. And it was reassuring, partly because uh, he has so much um, uh, credibility that it was as if he knew something, even though it was just trying to, you know, say, there, there. Uh, but it was comforting. And, uh, uh, and, and things did get better. So, uh, uh, so maybe he was an accidental visionary. The one thing I remember from my entire formal education was uh, in Philosophy 101, the first day, the instructor gave a definition of philosophy. He said, uh, philosophy is the rationalization of life. And that stayed with me uh, because everybody needs a metaphor for the mystery. And, and Bob takes into account that, that everybody's metaphor uh, works for them and, and depends on so many different factors, where they were brought up, how they were brought up, uh, a myriad of factors. And so uh, it just, it keeps him from being judgmental. Not that he's not judgmental about certain things. He's a, he's a, a walking open forum, or I should say a wheeling open forum. And he would laugh at that. I hope, I trust. I think that's another thing that, that, that uh, his readers have in common, is that reading his work changes them. Um, uh, you know, opens up synapses that were kind of dormant. I'm not an intellectual, really, uh, uh, and Bob's an intellectual, but he, um, but he mixes his intellectual pursuits with a, a kind of wit and a kind of um, almost a trickery, like a, like a classic trickster. And so that makes the intellectualism much more palatable uh, and, and, and accessible. And I, I, I think, uh, and that's another reason why he's my favorite philosopher. I, I think the common theme in his work is um, to lift the veil, and then to lift the veil that the veil is covering, and 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 then there's another veil. I think that it's uh, an age where it's where the veils are getting thicker, and there's, so there's more need to lift them. And so uh, I I hadn't articulated it that way before, but it's the metaphor that comes immediately to mind that uh, uh, you know there's sort of a a um, unspoken message there, which is, don't take anything for granted, and uh, and so in that sense, I think that he articulates their consciousness, and people welcome that because it's always reassuring to know that other people can express the way you feel, and I, I, I think that's the purpose that he serves to them. These are areas that uh, transcend liberal or conservative, young or old, uh, even ethnic differences. And, and I think that's why there's a, uh, a, a 
wide spectrum of, of his readers, they all have that in, in, in common, which is to, um, to, you know, to get a taste of wisdom. All right, and that was, that was Paul Krasner. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Good, good stuff. stuff. The next clip we have is actually going to be of, of Wilson himself. In several of his books, including Prometheus Rising and Cosmic Trigger, Quantum Psychology, and some others, Wilson talks about the eight-circuit model of consciousness, which he he's sort of known as the best explicator of this model, which was originally developed by Timothy Leary uh, in the 60s and 70s. The whole idea is that uh, consciousness works on these eight sequential circuits. Um, most people most people in um, Western culture, at least, operate on this sort of lower four. And um, Wilson, in this clip, talks about the first seven circuits as they correspond to the names of the days of the week in several languages. So this is a pretty interesting clip. It'll give you some idea of, of this whole eight-circuit model, which you'll find in many of his works. This is a very interesting blend of spirituality, yeah. uh, psychedelic consciousness, myth. And, and myth. Yeah. It's very uh, young or Joseph Campbell-ish yeah. in its yeah. own sort of 60s counterculture kind of way. So uh, enjoy. Sit back, relax, listen to it. Okay. Uh, I did this in Amsterdam recently, and I managed to get it in Norse, Swedish, and Dutch, uh, as well as in these languages. Um, it seems the first day of the week has some connection with the moon. It sort of stands out. It's named after the moon in German and English, and you can see it's named after the Latin word for the moon and the others. Uh, the earliest uh, goddess seems to have been the moon goddess, and uh, the first stage of human life is bonding to the mother. As soon as you're born, you've got to make a bond with the mother or you become autistic. That's a basic psychological law. The uh, second day seems to be named after war gods. Uh, Tis was an Anglo-Saxon war god. Mar- Martes, uh, Mar- Martidi, and so on are named after Mars, the Roman war god. And uh, the second uh, circuit of the... Uh, Human nervous system seems to be imprinted with uh, conflict with siblings and other children in which you learn how to protect your territory, how to expand your territory, how to maintain an ego, how to let people trot all over your ego. Uh, The second circuit deals uh, mostly with territorial struggle of which Mars, Ortiz, is the patron. And so the days of the week uh, seem to correspond to the chakras uh, so far and to, the, uh, and to the circuits of the nervous system, according to Leary. It's strange that they also correspond to the uh, spectrum of Newton. But uh, Wednesday, or Mercules, Wotan was the god of communication. Mercury is the god of communication. This corresponds to the speaking circuit, the semantic circuit where we learn how to speak and communicate and create reality tunnels that can be passed across generations. Uh, The fourth circuit is the sexual circuit. Uh, The reproductive circuit is the way it's usually been programmed in most societies, so it's named after the Father God. Thor, or Donner, is the god of thunder and the father of the gods. Jove is the god of thunder and the father of the gods and the Roman pantheon. 
Friday or Venus's day, Freya is the goddess of sexual ecstasy, Venus is the goddess of sexual ecstasy. Uh, that refers to Tantra or to the neurosomatic circuit, to uh, rising in ecstasy above the programming of the first four circuits which keep us uh, in our domesticated uh, roles in domesticated primate society. Saturday is named after Saturn or Satan or Shaitan or some mysterious dark god of the past that everybody is terrified of. Saturn ate his children. Uh, Satan has a bad reputation most places. <laughs> Although there was a story about a Kerry man who on his deathbed, the priest came to him and said, do you renounce Satan and all of his works? And he said, ah, sure, I don't want to be offending anyone at a time like this. <laughs> but uh, uh, this, this, uh, this figure seems to represent the genetic archives or the collective unconscious or what uh, Sheldrake calls the morphogenetic field, uh, the invisible connections between us and our remote ancestors racial memory, a collective unconscious in Jungian terms. And uh, Sunday or the Lord's Day, the day of the bright sun or the day of the Lord, uh, represents the metaprogramming circuit in which you develop the freedom to decide which circuit you're going to function on. So we've got an outline here of the development of neurological, psychological integration throughout evolution up to the present. How did this get coded into the names of the days of the week? rather strange, isn't it? Okay, and we're back. Yes, sir. Yes, that sir. was the man himself, Robert Anton Wilson, talking about uh, his uh, eight-circuit model of consciousness, which he got from Leary. So there's a few things that... Uh, some some other books, I don't know if we've mentioned... Um, I guess we mentioned Cosmic Trigger, Prometheus Rising. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Cosmic Trigger, which is one another one of my favorites of Robert John Wilson's book. It's it's also sort of a trilogy, it's three books, but really the first one is um, the most well known, and I think, and my favorite of those, partly because he talks in that particular book about a few things that many people find of interest. First of all, he talks about the twenty three enigma. Do you know anything about this, Raymond? Does this have something to do with the Discordian law of fives? Yeah, in fact, Wilson was one of the people who helped sort of develop the law of fives with thornley <laughs> with right? carrie thornley yeah uh, let me let yeah. me let me mention yeah, the law of fives here for a second so if you're not too familiar with discordianism which you know we've been talking about today and has come up you know on this show a number of times before the law of fives is one of those weird uh, tenets of the discordian faith you know like like eating hot dogs without buns is showing devotion to heiress that's one thing they do well another thing they do is the law of fives they they, they basically believe that you can find five anywhere and then it is completely significant. It shows up in all important places. So this 23 thing here, you know, a discordian would say, aha, law of fives, two plus three is five. You know, and that's, that's the kind of thinking. It's, it's looking for connections mm-hmm. in a very specific way. So tell us about this well, 23. Evid- evidently, uh, Wilson kind of got this from William Burroughs. Uh, who William Burroughs first started noticing these coincidences surrounding the number 23 when he was in Tangier, which is sort of a whole other show. But but w- Wilson sort of borrowed it, started looking into the whole 23 coincidence thing, and found and started uh, keeping a record of all of the uh, coincidences that he, or what he calls synchronicities, following uh, Carl Jung. 
that surrounded the number 23. And so he, he went through a lot of them in Cosmic Trigger, but also in Illuminatus this comes up a lot. Another thing in Cosmic Trigger, which a lot of people find interesting, is Wilson's experiences in January of 1973 uh, regarding... He has several explanations for what he experienced. He had some sort of mystical experiences. One of, the ex- one of his explanations being that he was contacted by aliens from uh, the Sirius star-, star system. Right. But, of course, any time he would speak of this in public, he would, al- he would always say, well, I might have been contacted by aliens from Sirius. I, I might have been tripping really hard. Right. You know, or... This could be anything else. That's the great thing about Wilson is he's agnostic about something. Yeah. Even in a prophetic moment when he has sort of a Gnostic experience, you know, he's still not going to call it anything. He's not going to say it is anything. And we'll get yeah. to the E-prime stuff later. But yeah, yeah. this serious thing is really weird because it's because Wilson's vision, like you were saying, you know, supposedly had its source from the star system of Sirius, aliens, mm-hmm. you know. Which you can take or leave by itself. It sounds pretty kooky. But then when you start looking at how many other cultures, writers, figures have had experiences themselves saying, I've been contacted by extraterrestrials from uh, Sirius... Then things start getting a little weirder. You want to you want to fill us in on a few of these other yeah, cases. Yeah, interestingly enough, uh, the two other cases that I can think of that who, who uh, people who claim some sort of alien contact, uh, both of them it happened around the same time, January February of nineteen seventy three. Uh, Philip K. Dick apparently had uh, either either a mystical experience or a schizophrenic episode around that same time in which he claimed to have been contacted variously by a you know a, an ancient satellite in orbit that was built by um, aliens from Sirius or oh, he also gives the explanation that he was contact or he was inhabited by the spirit of a gnostic like a first century gnostic christian named Thomas so th- those are some of his various explanations for uh, his experiences around the same time that Wilson was having his. Now, Wilson's experience leads him to write a lot of what have, what is in Cosmic Trigger. Yeah. Does 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 Dick Philip K. Dick write a book uh, just, uh, based on these experiences? Almost well? almost every book he ever wrote after that uh, was related to those experiences. He's probably I'm not sure what book of Philip Dick's he's best known for. I mean, a lot of people are familiar with A Scanner Darkly. Which you recent know, film, the recent yeah. film, as well as like Minority Report, which is a short story. That's a, basically a lot of people are familiar with the films that are based on Philip Dick's work, like Blade Runner, Minority Report, Paycheck, A Scanner Darkly, Total Recall. Like all of these films are based on books by Philip Dick. And if you've seen, and most of you, I'm sure, have seen those films. Yeah, yeah. I mean, imagine the imagine the imagination that he must have had, you know, or you know, uh, think for one second about the imagination that this man mm. must have had to have to be able to put you. I mean, if you've seen even the difference between three sci-fi movies, Minority Report, Total Recall, and uh, Blade Runner, you know that you're not in the same world each time. It's right. not it's not your usual pulp science fiction. Right. And well, the interesting thing about Philip Dick is after he had these experiences in 1973, his writing got very, to me, very intense and also very strange. One of the best known works that one of his best known works after that period is called Vallis, um, which I think Vallis stands in Philip Dick terminology for like vast, active, living, intelligent system. And Vallis is, is a satellite in orbit around the Earth, this ancient thousand year old satellite. 
you know, thousands of years old. And there were times when Philip Dick actually seemed to believe that this was a real phenomenon, that there was this uh, satellite beaming signals to him. There's also one of the first books by Philip Dick I read. It was called Radio Free Albemuth, which had very similar themes. It was about a. Uh, it actually was written from several points of view. One of the points of view was a character named Philip K. Dick, in fact, mm-hmm. and it went through his experiences. Um, and it, the feeling of the, this work is that it is, in many ways, autobiographical. It it reports how Philip Dick was had some experience where uh, this pink beam of light was you know beamed into his forehead and he had a vision of an illness that his son had and this he was told by some entity that's in connection with this experience that he needed to take his son to the doctor um, because his son had a stomach ail- a stomach ailment that was that he was born with and the doctors wouldn't find it unless they looked f- specifically for it so he brings his son to the ne- to the doctor the next day and uh, sure enough like his son has exactly what this entity told him in this experience. Right. So, I mean, just from that story by itself, we know that you can't always discount someone's visionary or psychedelic experience. Right. Well, in Dick's case, it's, it's more of a schizophrenic sort of experience. Well, possibly. From, I mean, that's the thing. What we can gather, anyway. Well, the thing is about uh, Philip Dick and schizophrenia is that, you know, how there's, there's, he was never diagnosed as such. I know he, he did spend some time here and there uh, institutionalized. And he he did end up dying of a stroke in 1981, but you know if if someone has an experience like that where something near impossible or at the very least highly improbable happens, I mean is that really psychosis? I mean that's I wouldn't I wouldn't say so. Right. So bringing this back around to our discussion of of Robert Anton Wilson and his supposed contact from aliens in the Sirius star system. Who knows whether this is just the way he interpreted it or not. I mean, you can say, hey, perhaps it was a visionary experience, but the details don't matter. Well, you know, maybe, maybe, but the details may matter more than you think when Mm -hmm. you start doing more research into uh, other cultures' views on the planet or the star system Sirius going back through time. And this is, for me, this is the most, besides Wilson's, you know, him talking and these clips we're playing, this is the most interesting thing for me that we're going to talk about tonight, and that's the idea that maybe we have mm-hmm. been contacted by aliens from the planet Sirius. Now, I know you wouldn't expect me to say that, <laughs> even if you've listened to all the shows that we've done before. We, we've you, never talked about aliens. We've never talked about aliens yeah. all that much, except for when, I guess, Wilhelm Reich thought he had been contacted. Right. So the serious thing is Incidentally, really Incidentally, do we know who, what, where these aliens should have been or would have been for Reich, for Wilhelm Reich? I don't think Reich mentioned it. Okay. So, but that'd be uh, interesting to find out. I, I think with Reich, wasn't it with Reich that he had just it was some weird radio signals that he thought had to be from an intelligent origin, but weren't. I think so. Like that. I think so. Anyway, moving on. If you going back to this serious thing, there's a book by it was Robert Temple, right? Mm-hmm. Robert Temple is a book called The Serious Mystery. That's it. And uh, it's been out for twenty or thirty years. A lot of people have written other works based off of it, but it's the original one. Uh, that sort of relays this story, the story of the Dogon tribe in Africa. Joe, you want to tell yeah. the story of the Dogon? Yeah, just a little bit. Uh, the The Dogon tribe evidently was visited by anthropologists in the mid to late 19th century. And one of their myths that they relayed to the anthropologists was that long ago they had been visited by some gods 
who were from the stars. In particular, they were from this, they were from Sirius. And what these gods told the ancient Dogon people, according to the Dogon people, were was that uh, their star system was a binary star system. That is, that there was a larger star, which we know now as Sirius A, and a smaller star orbiting around it, which we know now as Sirius B. We didn't know, Western culture didn't know at that point that there was a Sirius B. They didn't know there was a second, a second star. I don't even it. think they knew that there was such a thing as a binary star system. Yeah, they, back they, then. they may not have. Yeah. You know? um, the Dogon tribe knew not only that there was a binary star system, but also that they, they knew that one was larger, one was smaller. They knew to a fairly good degree what the ratio of the larger to the smaller one was. They also knew the not the orbit the period around of Sirius B around Sirius A as well as you know the period as well as like the the path of the orbit in other words the shape of the orbit around the larger star it's not obviously it's not just a circle and it's not an ellipse uh with um you know this larger star in the direct center it's kind of offset but they they basically knew the period and the path of the orbit of the smaller star and the larger this this is something that's basically impossible to calculate without modern computers and scientific equipment it's especially telescopes it's something that we didn't even that we didn't know anything about until decades later so that's basically the story of the Dogon. Now, there's like Raymond said, there's been been books written based on this, like uh, notably uh, Graham Hancock's book Fingerprints of the Gods goes goes into uh, the Dogon mystery in terms of Egyptian mythology and says that a lot of Egyptian mythology clearly borrows from the Dogon myths. Uh, so he suspects that maybe there and maybe there were some aliens from Sirius who visited and gave ancient peoples this information. Right, and I think he, in his work, and, and while wow, this is the second time we've mentioned him this season already, his, uh, his work goes on to make the claim that perhaps the way that Egyptians set up their temple complexes was meant to align, align you up, basically, to, to notice the procession of the star Sirius, because... Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the Earth goes through this thing called precession where it sort of wobbles on its axis or it tilts a little bit uh, over the course of 24,000 years. It makes one cycle, I think, one full cycle. It's maybe 12,000 years it takes it to go halfway. Anyway, Hancock's research says that these uh, temple complexes were made to sort of align with the rising and falling of Sirius along along precession, the Earth's precession, which is bizarre that you would build something that you know, uh, I mean, it's going to take like a thousand years for you to even notice mm-hmm. things moving at all. Right. You know, right. it's almost as if, uh, you know, according to his theory, it's almost as if they created a big arrow, <laughs> you know, yeah. saying this place is important. This is why Sirius, the dog star, I guess what they call mm-hmm. it, is very important. But mm-hmm. real fascinating stuff. And, and, and the fact that Wilson ends up in the middle of this thing, supposedly receiving some sort of right. communication. You know. Wilson goes into also a lot of other notable figures who've had in, uh, experiences surrounding the Dog Star Sirius, including, I believe, Aleister Crowley, Yuri Geller, some others. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, um, we're recording this segment in pickups right now. We don't have Austin in the studio with us anymore. Yeah. Yeah. But if we did, he'd tell, he'd tell you all about how Crowley believed that he was contacted by a spirit called Iwas in 1903, from which he delivered, uh, or from which he received his famous book of the law, the mm-hmm. the foundation for his Thelema, his sort of religion of the will, Crowleyanity, it's sometimes called. 
Well, I, I think Crowley even mentions that the source of this transmission, the, the place from which Iwas comes, I, I think he says is serious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it makes sense if you think about how significant the dog star is in, uh, in Egyptian mythology. Is that the black helicopters I hear? I think so. They're coming to get his ram. Oh, my God. Oh, man. This is, this is what happened to Jim Keith. Isn't it? <laughs> anyway, we got helicopters in the studio. That's today. right. <laughs> so so um, some other stuff. Terrence McKenna also talked about. I had mentioned some other people um, had had alien experiences around January, February of 73. Terrence McKenna also did. that. I believe that was when him and his brother Dennis went into the Amazon and had their famous uh, La Trera experiments in the Amazon. Um, was that ayahuasca that they were using? He, the they, act, they were actually using psilocybin mushrooms, which he writes about all of that in his book, True Hallucinations. There's actually, I think there, he writes an afterword to a book of Philip Dick short stories. I believe it's called something like I Understand Philip K. Dick. <laughs> okay. Because it's all about McKenna is saying, oh, at the same time Philip Dick was having his experiences, I was in the Amazon having something very similar that uh, had alien contact sort of integrated into the whole thing as well. So, very interesting So, stuff. Joe, what's your take on this before, before we end this segment? What do you think about all this? Do you think that this is just uh, something bubbling up from the collective unconscious, as Jung would say? Possibly. Or do you think this yeah. is real? Do you think there could be some real contact by another entity besides the person seeing or or receiving the message. I will tend to side with Wilson on issues like this and be a sort of model agnostic and and acknowledge that any number of models could be correct while retaining my skepticism on all of them. I think that the the contact with entities model is an interesting one. Whether or not these entities are you know, external to the human experience or the norm or ordinary human experience. Or to the physical or, or world. To, or to whatever. the physical world is, you know, something that something that it's kind of hard to gauge. So yeah, I mean I, I to me they're they're more interesting than anything and I and I would be willing to accept them as mystical experiences, uh, whatever you know, whatever that word means. So, what else we got? We have any more clips tonight? Yeah, we've got uh, this. This last one is from one of my favorite fiction authors, actually, uh, Tom Robbins. He wrote a book, well, several books. I'll try to name a few of them: uh, Skinny Legs and All, Still Life with Woodpecker, Fierce Invalids Home from Hot Climates, Funny and Joyous. Yeah, yeah, usually. his books are great. There's also, um, you know, there's actually recently within the last year or two, he wrote this great essay in, in Harper's Harper's Magazine. It's all about levity in fiction and how fiction shouldn't be so, you know, based on negative or dark emotions, but should rather cause joy in the reader. Which I think, I mean, if you've read any of Tom Robbins' books, then you know exactly where he's coming from. I guess he didn't like T.S. Eliot too much. (laughs) (laughs) So, Tom Robbins. Yeah, this is a great clip, so. Enjoy. I first encountered Robert Anton Wilson in a magazine article um, it was a little magazine called The Realist that was published by Paul Krasner, a very radical little rag. And I don't remember the title of the article, but it changed my life. It, um, I'm not even sure of the subject matter, although I, th- because it was in a Bob's kind of rambling style, but I, I think that essentially it was about anarchy. And I was, at the time, one of those misguided 
Americans who think that anarchy is a synonym for chaos. And it was in that article that I saw uh, for the first time that I was an anarchist, that all anarchy really meant was that each individual has to take responsibility for his or her own actions. And that the, uh, the passion of your neighbor can be contained by your own passion, but the passion of the state and the police cannot be contained at all. And I, I read through that article three or four times and it was one of those, yeah, yeah, right, right, oh, wow, articles, when you just keep saying, yeah, right. And I had never heard of him before, and I actually think at the time he may have still been working for the telephone company in Chicago. I think that's how he was identified. Maybe Playboy. Maybe, Playboy, maybe he was working for Playboy by then. But it did mention in the little blurb that he had worked for the telephone company in Chicago. So uh, it was a name that was new to me, but... Um, it, it crystallized my own uh, ill-formed thinking on the subject of, of anarchy and uh, freedom. I think the, the central theme to Bob's work uh, is freedom, is liberation, and truth. They say the truth will make you free. and. Um, it's a two-way street. I know the... I've, I've said that the, the primary themes of my books are liberation, celebration, and transformation. And uh, that probably would apply to him as well. But certainly he's very big on the liberation and uh, he's the inspiration to us. I mean, it's just too bad that... Uh, that he's not in the White House. Can you imagine the State of the Union address given by Robert Anton Wilson? I mean, people would wake up all over America as feeling that they had truly been reborn. I think there's a thin line between the silly and the profound, between the white light, the clear light, and the joke. And it is on that boundary line, on that frontier, that I believe is the most significant and most risky and fertile place for a writer or philosopher to pitch their tent. Bob is definitely outside of the mainstream. Um, I think that he will probably continue to attract readers and uh, I don't know, he probably would hate the word disciples, but uh, he, would, he will probably continue to influence a minority of people and in the best of all possible worlds that minority would swell. Uh, you know, it really doesn't need to get too big. Um, you, know, you only need about 15% of the population to be enlightened in order to expedite an enlightened culture. I figure that in, that in the golden age of Greece, probably 15% of the people were in the mysteries. 15% of the people 
were enlightened. 15% of the people really knew what was going on, but that was enough to affect a golden age. So if there is a time in the future when we could get 15% of the population reading Robert Anton Wilson's works and having the guts to, to act on them, then uh, yeah, we, we'd have a golden age in this country. I think that both of us are interested um, in, the, in those, those very significant things that Western civilization has chosen to neglect because it's a challenge and a threat to uh, their belief systems, primarily political and religious. Um, there's a great deal of, of chess beating in uh, the United States today, uh, quite fashionable to talk about us being the land of the free and the home of the brave. But as a matter of fact, I have met very few Americans who I consider either brave or free. Um, there are Americans certainly who are willing to risk their lives, and that's a commendable thing, and I don't want to denigrate it in any way, but it takes a great deal more courage to risk one's belief systems. And it's safe, much safer to play around with a man's wife than with his cliches. And uh, freedom is too, seems to be too heady a wine for most people. They really can't take a lot of freedom. And most of the freedom in the United States is cosmetic. Um, but Bob Wilson is a brave and free man. Our whole culture is set up in, in such a way as to foster dogmatism and we get this from the time we're in the cradle and uh, it's a really a heroic act on Bob's part to uh, have freed himself from those chains because those chains are very insidious they're invisible and they, they can be very hard to detect and and they shackle you when you aren't looking and often you don't even realize you are shackled and that's I think maybe one of the benefits of of psychedelics is during that, in the throes of that experience, you realize that you have manacles around your ankles and um, shows you uh, where the key is hidden to get them off. But somehow you keep getting entwined in those chains again. It's like I, like I think uh, the, the secret to lead in a happy and fulfilled life is the refusal to take oneself too seriously. But because of the way we've been culturally brainwashed since birth, it is a constant battle. I mean, I fight against it all the time. But whenever I find myself unhappy or depressed, sooner or later I realize, oh, I'm taking myself too seriously. And it just vanishes like that. All the great voices have been stilled recently. Uh, Tim Leary died, uh, Terrence McKenna died, Ken Kesey died, William S. Burroughs died. Um, you know, Bob is one of the few people left.
who is speaking in a sane voice. Okay, that was Tom Robbins and his thoughts on Robert Anton Wilson, who was the topic or has been the topic of our show today. Yeah, um, we yeah. had Tom Robbins on our show. <laughs> Um, I just want to read a little bit uh, from Wilson himself, his sort of closing statements as he was leaving this world last week. On the 6th of January, he wrote on his blog that according to several medical authorities, he was likely to have between two days and two months left to live. His closing message on that blog was, and I quote, Please pardon my levity. I don't see how to take death seriously. It seems absurd. Wilson dies five days later at 4.50 a.m. on the morning of the 11th. He will be sorely missed. He will be missed. One of my favorite authors. One of my heroes, Raymond. Agreed. And yeah. a hero of many people that are longtime friends of mine in the counterculture and in the subculture. So, best, best way to celebrate Wilson's life is, I think, to look into his work. Look right. for him online. You know, Look for his books. Look for any videos you can find. Go check out the MaybeLogic.com website and the MaybeLogic.org website. Yeah, we want to thank them again for being nice enough yes. to uh, allow us to use clips. Yeah. From, and, and by the way, all the cli- I don't know if we mentioned this earlier, but all the clips that we used today come from the uh, extras yeah. disc. You didn't hear a DVD. word from the documentary itself. The documentary is great, mm-hmm. and the extras is, is fantastic as well. But all that stuff you heard today was from the extras. So, yeah, I guess that's about going to wrap it up for us. Uh, this week on Out There Radio. I hope everyone out there has enjoyed our tribute to Robert Anton Wilson. He is, he is such a fine author mm-hmm. and uh, and funny, a very funny man, too, if sure. you ever heard any of his spoken word pieces. But, um, yeah, before we wrap it up, we have a couple of announcements for you guys. How do you get in touch with us? Well, if you've heard any of the other episodes, you know, but we need to say it each time. Uh, you can go to our website, www.outthereradio.net. You can send us an email. It's uh, outthereradio at gmail.com. That's right. You can uh, chat with me on AOL Instant Messenger at almost any time of the week. Our uh, screen name is Out There Radio. Yeah, so that's how you get in touch with us. Uh, we get a few shout-outs before we leave tonight. We want to thank all of our terrestrial and internet affiliates for uh, running the second season of Out There Radio. We really, we really do appreciate your presence. Uh, also, we'd like to give a shout out to Paranoia Magazine, who has been uh, nice enough to trade promo promos with us. This is us uh, sort of hitting them back for that because they ran a uh, ad for us in their mm-hmm. last issue mm-hmm. and a lot of good stuff in there. They're, Read it. Yeah, Read most it. most recent issue, like I've said before, features Adam Go Rightly, one of our past past guest, so that's really good. Yeah, there's a great piece on Charles Manson and the Process Church. That One of my personal interests, I'm fast, endlessly fascinated by that stuff. Absolutely, and we may have to come back and do a show on the process. We should also thank Hot 100 here in Athens, who if who's playing our show right before we're on live on WOG. Right, yeah, so if you're listening to us on WPPP right now, I'm sure you'll hear some sort of bump or a promo yeah. that says this right after the episode, but if you were listening on Hot 100 right now, uh, and about... 30, 45 <laughs> minutes, you'll be able to turn your dial over to 90.5 FM WOG and pick up the newest episode, this week's episode, which, yeah, we hope will be very good. And so. if, you're, if you're listening on WOG, well... The, then, then you're home. You're yeah, then you're there's, home. there's nothing more that you can do for us. But you could, well, but you could listen to us on a Hot 100 on Wednesdays at 10. Yes. Yeah, you before could, yeah, you, you listen get to a double us. Dose. Yeah, exactly. Or if you don't have time, <laughs> if you don't have time for all this live radio gobbledygook, then uh, you can download our podcast. Yeah. Primarily, we'd like you to do that from the iTunes directory, but all of our past episodes are available on website and you can on the website and you can download them individually out there radio.net. But like I said, that iTunes directory if you subscribe in there, 
our you know our our billboard ranking, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. might go up a little bit, a little bit. Write us a review in iTunes as well. Yeah, we like yeah, to read yeah, them. exactly, exactly. Even if you think we're liberal propaganda. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> anyway, my name is Raymond Wiley. I'm Joe McFall. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Out There, a presentation of WUOG 90.5 FM in Athens, Georgia. For more information or to subscribe to our podcast, visit www.wuog.org slash podcasts or email us at outthereradio at gmail.com.